In this ClimateGen episode, I speak with Dr. Chris Kettle. Chris is Principal Scientist within the international organisation Alliance Biodiversity International and SEAT, one of the global CGIAR centres for agricultural research and development. Chris leads their work globally on restoration and the role of trees in transitioning food systems. This is a critically important episode and Chris really dives into the complex interconnectivity between forestry, biodiversity, climate, food system security, knowledge and so much more. Actioning the knowledge we already possess in the science and indigenous communities while taking a global instead of national perspective has the potential to radically improve our prospects. This is the real challenge that we face today. Chris offers a wealth of information on both the status quo and the potential for righting the wrongs of the past to fight back and try to conserve and regenerate global forests while supplying the world's food at the same time. I do agree that it'll take a revolution outlined in other episodes, but time is not on our side. In the next episode, I speak with Honduran youth activist Ricardo Pineda who I heard speaking at COP28. It is a fascinating conversation that touches on justice issues and why he is now calling for research in climate interventions that could possibly save lives in his community. I'm also just about to edit the interview with sociologist Dana Ra Fisher about her new book, Saving Ourselves, From Climate Shocks to Climate Action. This is an unofficial sequel to the interview with Roger Hallam. There are parallel lines that we all need to comprehend. Thank you to all supporters and subscribers. Your support really is appreciated. I am recording lots of interviews at the moment and all feedback, good and bad, is welcome. If you want to gain more insight into how these issues all connect together and actually fail at the political and structural level, then please do order my book Cop Out. It is available to order on Amazon and from a wide range of bookstores worldwide. Thank you very much. Chris, it's great to see you again. Thank you very much for taking the time. I want to start with a broad view question. With the ongoing deforestation, the increase in droughts, monumental forest fires that we're seeing, the destruction of ecosystems and so on, we're left with a pretty bleak outlook for the challenge of not just saving what's left, but restoring what we've lost. As someone who's immersed in the world of forestry restoration in different parts of the world. Can you give us your summary assessment of where we are in meeting the challenge of preserving and restoring forests? Yeah, thanks, Nick. I think this is a really important question. And I think it's worth sort of stepping back a bit and thinking about the planet and the way that trees have, have, have been a, a critical part of the Earth uh, system. And, and, and how we as humans have impacted on that. I mean, conservatively speaking, since humans have started cultivating land for food and cutting down wood for timber, for fuel, we've we've reduced the number of trees on our planet by a good over half, probably, of, uh, of the trees that were on our planet. And, and those trees are absolutely critical to a healthy planet and climate. But these trees aren't equally distributed um, across the planet. We have um, distribution varies in terms of density and, of course, hugely in terms of diversity of tree species, where we have this incredible diversity from the equatorial tropical regions and then declining as we move towards um, the poles, um, where 
we might have high density of trees, but we have a very distinct difference in the way that those trees and those forests contribute to the climate and also the, the biodiversity, which is related to those forests. And I think absolutely critical that we don't disconnect that climate role that trees play and the biodiversity livelihood and other um, ecosystem service provision that they provide to our planet. And it's very clear that converting these tropical forests to agricultural land for timber or for floors, furniture, is, is tantamount to suicide to critically maintain planetary within safe operations space. We don't need to do it for food either. We don't need to do it to provide enough coffee to drink, to dr enough cocoa to produce the chocolate everyone wants to eat, and neither of which are, of course, essential to a healthy diet. So we were in this very dichotomous situation where the planet um, globally has been massively degraded over historical timeframes. And we're now in a place where we have these massive commitments politically, globally, to restore degraded lands with the forest ecosystems through the UN Decade on Ecosystem Restoration. We have the Bond Challenge and, and the likes of the Trillion Trees campaign, all framed around climate, water and biodiversity. But like the climate cops, these commitments, I'm very concerned, are not really translating into action. So that's the, the reality. And one of the things that is very clear from my work is that our capacity to restore degraded land with long-term resilient implementation strategies is quite embryonic globally. But even more so across the tropics and subtropical belt, where we have potential to grow more diverse and faster growing multifunctional trees. And this is especially in the capacity to implement what is often referred to as nature-based solutions, like using trees and forests uh, for climate mitigation and carbon suppression. Uh, just to give you an example, the most of the world, not only in developing countries, but globally, the, the ability to supply the, the simple seeds of the diversity and the quality, and particularly the genetic diversity of trees, to meet current commitments to restoration is woefully inadequate and needs huge investment if we want to really meet restoration targets that are going to not only deliver on transitioning a planet to where we maintain more forests, more trees in agricultural land, uh, more trees in urban systems, where we have different ways of doing that, but actually providing things like the natural regeneration of forests. Where we use natural forest regeneration versus some assistance, uh, for example, through protection from fire and grazing, and where we really need to plant trees or where agroforestry or agroecological systems um, can be implemented, we need to balance production versus other ecosystem services. And we're, we're only starting to really be able to inform those decisions well now in terms of where we use these different processes to support restoration of, of forests and trees into landscapes. This sounds almost horribly like the the sort of carbon problem, whereas, you know, if we started doing this decades ago, we'd be pretty much on top of the program, you know, we'd have transitioned away and things wouldn't be so dire. But now the emissions reductions are entering impossible demands of getting up to something like 10% a year to stay within the, the carbon budgets. Is there a point with the, the forestry side of things where it gets away from us, where we cross thresholds that we can't come back from? Absolutely. I mean, I think what, what we often don't consider is that you know, not only are these forest systems critical to regulating climate, both globally and locally, but they're also vulnerable to them. So a lot of the work we've done 
looked at what are the interactions between land use change, overexploitation, fire, but also how climate change is shifting the distribution of species as well. And that in itself influences forests' capacity to actually sequester carbon because you change from species that can lock up a lot more carbon to carbon to species that are less wood dense, less uh, faster growing, maybe the less climactic species as as these climate impacts affect this, the, the species compositions of these forests as well. Okay, and you talked about the the rapidity of the, the sort of the heating and the changes that are going on, and obviously. Forests can't adapt that fast. It's not that they can quickly just switch out their, you know, adaptive capabilities. What about things like pests and other creatures moving through? Because they can be much more mobile. Are they a problem that you're witnessing? Absolutely. This is a critical issue. And actually, I think is for me is one one of the things that is really under-considered in the whole uh, movement of restoration because what's fundamental is, is the genetic diversity that enables be- tree species not only to adapt to climate but also to be resilient to the different pests and disease and environmental pressures that are faced upon them and as you say they can't get up and walk away they they really they, they naturally have a high diversity but what we're doing is eroding that diversity through degradation we're fragmenting populations reducing the size of tree populations and the amount of genetic diversity that can be conserved within those. And then we're often using very low bases of genetic diversity in restoration, particularly in things like propagation of trees, because we're either doing clonal propagation or trying to produce. And this is linked to one of the challenges, the political side of restoration, because everyone is trying to very simplify the actual metrics of what successful restoration is in terms of number of trees planted, number of hectares restored. And this then leads to this notion that all we need to do is increase the area and the number of trees on the ground. But of course, it's much more nuanced than that. We really need to be considering which species are going to be grown where, which are the ones that are going to provision local benefits, what diversity of species we're going to be using, and not only the diversity of species, but the genetic diversity within those species that can adapt to the climate conditions and adapt to those continuing and increasing exposure to pests and disease, because of course, degraded and restored systems don't have the level of resilience that those primary forests had, which had huge diversity of age classes as well as genetic diversity. So it's these things go hand in hand with how you implement resilient restoration. You kind of answered my next question. There are people an- announcing that they're going to plant millions and billions of trees and all of this kind of stuff. From what you've witnessed with this going on, how much is it is done in the way that you think it should be done from your research and how much of it is almost worrying or alarming in yeah. some ways yeah i mean this is uh, something that we we try to raise awareness of a lot in terms of what is being tabled as restoration and what is acceptable in terms of how we want to restore systems so i mean i think There is a lot of good work that's showing implementing things like natural regeneration as a strategy. And so there's two sides to this. There's the side of we should be using nature to its full potential to enable restoration. We should be enabling natural regeneration using natural seeds dispersal where recovery of of degraded forest is able to recover through the control of those degradative processes. On the other side, if we're going to use other strategies like agroforestry plantations with um, different species and and different types of, let's say, 
agroecological or regenerative agriculture, we really need to be thinking about what what those are going to do. So, I, I mean, I've, just to summarise this, when it, when tree planting might be bad, and for me, when it's bad is when it's not providing local needs to communities. It's not compatible with local water needs and ecological context, and the trees will not persist for a long time. Uh, for example, using a lot of exotic species that are planted for fuel wood. And the table is climate mitigation, but of course those trees are going to grow for three to four years and then cut down and burn. So they have very limited impact on how climate is going to be affected. Where it's good is when we're using locally adapted species that provide multiple benefits, including food, livelihoods, carbon, biodiversity, and improving local hydrology and microclimate. And I think that's something really important as well that often is is, is not considered that Forest not only is important for global climate systems, it's really important for local climate and how cloud formations occur. And you only have to go and stand under a, um, an oil palm plantation compared to a primary lowland rainforest in Southeast Asia to know the difference in local microclimate between those environments and realize that the profound effect that trees and forests have on local climate. Yeah. Okay, so... There's been a hell of a lot of attention drawn to the, the disruption of the hydrological cycle recently. There was a big report announced just before or just during the COP. And what you're kind of saying is that the wild and potentially rewilded areas could play a huge role in, in restoring some of this. Because, I mean, this is an existential part of our, our whole planet if you like for us as humans so you're saying that, that that really is a link we need to pay attention to on another thing you brought up at the beginning you said you know we can have the coffee we can have the chocolate but there's always this antagonism between land use and expanded agriculture and yet the protection of forests and wild areas are there ways to meet the needs of the local communities, to build food resilience systems, to ensure that the natural ecosystem remains intact. From what you can see, are there ways to do this? And really, I have to stress, meeting our needs to feed us. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is crucial. You know, agricultural food systems are a principal drivers of climate change, of biodiversity loss. And, and we, on top of that, we also have the recognition that we produce a lot of food that's really not good for us, right? We're not good for our health. And increasingly, we're realizing the relationship between the types of food that we eat in high concentrations and the impact it has on our gut microbiome and how that affects our health and well-being as well. And I think what's crucial to this is it's central to the triple crisis of climate change, biodiversity loss and human health. But I question the notion that this um, this is a production issue. I really do. We all, we already produce enough food for the entire planet, but I think a lot of it is the wrong food, uh, food that's wasted, and food that is bad for our health if if overconsumed. And we certainly have an overconsumption problem globally uh, in terms of the volume of food and the wrong foods. So in my view, the science is pretty clear on this. We need to transition away from an animal-based diet and consume not only less globally, but consume more plant-based foods, including seeds, nuts, and fruits, which ultimately improve both our health and that of the planet. So I think in that sense, we really have a, a lot of very sound science for how the, this use of nature-based solutions in the, in the agri-food systems can particularly through using more biodiversity can both meet human needs improve human health and contribute significantly to keeping us in a safe 
space, living space in terms of planetary boundaries. Okay, so the science is clear, but there's definitely a sociological issue of communication and of, and of course, yeah. I mean, I think it's it's not just it's not just production. It's about how consumption drives production, and of course, there's yeah, the whole economic system, the corporate agricultural system that influences that. Yeah, especially people in our regions, you know, where we consume so much. Um, switching track a little bit. I was interviewing a scientist called uh, Ewan Nisbet, who's based in the UK, who monitors methane emissions around the world. And he used this term turning on with regards to peatland emissions of methane around the equator. And from your work on conserving agrobiodiversity, what are your observations of these kinds of critical ecosystems like uh, peat bogs and so on and so forth? Of course, I mean, we've got very clearly critical ones that are majorly under threat, like the Congo Basin, the lowland rainforest of Southeast Asia, and the Amazon Basin. And they're continuing to grade these critical ecosystems. And we're already showing evidence of these reaching tipping points. You know, these forests are changing due to climate and local climate, where they're transitioning. We're seeing a mass dieback in the Amazon, which is being really well demonstrated as a consequence of climate change. And in reality, these tropical forest systems are are naturally highly diverse and consequently highly resilient, as they've shown to be recovering many times over thousands of years when civilizations have converted forests in the past and then abandoned and then they've recovered. I think the issue is, but never before have we seen this kind of planetary level experiencing the scale of degradation that humans are inflicting on the planet. Again, there has been a lot of research that shows the consumption is by a relative few, not many. And I expect a lot of people who are listening to this will be in the few, few, few category. What can you tell us about how we think about these things that can make us more, I don't know, sensitive or aware to be able to articulate, to be able to think through what's right, what's wrong, with regard to how you know we see these things so far away from us, but we don't, we kind of feel powerless. I think it's down to all of us to transition our lifestyles. I mean, we know ultimately, as your podcast demonstrates very well, you know, the fossil fuel industry and the, and, and the consumption of fossil fuels is the major issue around climate change. And, and we all need to contribute to reducing that in the ways we live our lives by reducing our dependency on fossil fuels. But I think the same applies to agricultural systems and the food we consume and absolutely we can use agroforestry, agrobiodiversity to transition to much more sustainable food systems that contribute to maintaining us within planetary boundaries. And there's an extraordinary diversity still out there, which is both highly nutritious and includes many tree species of which most people have never heard of that pack much more vitamins and other health compounds than the, the usual foods that we eat. So actually increasing our consumption of a much more diverse range of foods. And the way we cook as well, I think this is really important, the way we the way we draw on the diversity of food that's not perishable, that we don't need to keep, um, you know, using frozen products or, um, you know, always relying on fresh food, which is why seeds and nuts and things are so amazing because they can not only... Have relatively low cost in terms of production and transport but reduce those issues about perishability and what i see is continually happening at the moment is that the production systems are still driven by the the conventional 
foods. And even we see this sort of homogenization of perceptions of diet, where many of the tropical countries are producing tomatoes and oranges and things that, are, you know, Western society has introduced as a cultural kind of norm, uh, uh, instead of focusing on producing the extraordinary diversity that are in, in, in native to those regions or endemic to those regions in cases that um, actually are much better for us to eat and much better for the planet in terms of their production. And I think we really should be you know, looking at how instead of production landscapes that account for ecosystem services, we need to provide um, the agroecological or regenerative agricultural movements, which are starting to shift the dial on this, um, still have quite a long way to go. And this is really nicely illustrated, for example, by Dan Saladino's great book on eating to extinction. But we're losing this critical diversity that actually ultimately will save us. Such a great point. And when we look at that and you're talking about we're losing it, but we currently have it and we're, we're kind of doing the wrong stuff. And I think this is what I was trying to get to is that how can we start to actually de demand the right stuff? Um, and also, what sort of time frame are we up? I mean, we, we're seeing things accelerate now. And I just wanted, from your perspective, when you're looking at these critical things, what's the time frame you're looking at for, for seeing the operating space we have, if you like? Sure. I think that's a really, really difficult question to answer in kind of, you know, 10s or 20s or 30s of years in terms of um, how it takes a long time to shift the dial on these things at country levels. I mean, we work a lot with ministries and um, uh, from the level of the farm to the level of ministries of agriculture or environment in countries. And in my experience, it you can change things in some ways quickly by really raising awareness and, and people's understanding of what's critical, um, but actually changing institutional structures and policies is sometimes really challenging. And for me, that's, I guess, if I kind of try to step back a bit, which is often quite hard to do, we really need much more collaboration at a global level to address these problems and to the politicians that are often very focused on short-term national context when these issues are majorly global and need coordination across countries, where developing countries cannot be held back from developing because they're home to the majority of diversity on the planet or host the most carbon-dense forests, we need to be more equitable in the way that, you know, who pays for these services and, 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 and all the benefits that these provide. So I'm, I'm kind of optimistic on the one level that we have all the knowledge that we, is there. And, and uh, as I'm sure we share that pessimism in, Seeing that global kind of unification and collaboration that's going to transition these things in a way where, you know, it, it's, it's a no-brainer for a country to develop a really solid strategy to contribute to global climate mitigation and biodiversity conservation simultaneously with receiving the incentives and the benefits from doing that global service when you know most of the northern hemispheres have degraded and already lost most of their, I mean, take where you and I are from, the UK, we have like 3% of our natural forest. It's, you know, we really have to think, okay, well, we have a global responsibility to address these challenges and we need to share the burden of it on a planetary scale. So, you know, that requires a lot of deep commitment. <laughs> You're absolutely right. And it it's kind of astonishing, really. But at the same time, what you're saying you're saying, oh, we need greater collaboration. We need all these things. 
But if you get them, it's actually extremely exciting for a challenge for the next generation to be the generation that restores nature. I mean, that I can't think of anything that's more exciting and more inspiring than that. And it, I think it just comes back to this thing of how do we articulate your needs? Because the the ministries and governments have failed in a way to, yeah. do, to make those structural changes. And, and largely that is because the public aren't really aware of what needs to be done. I agree. I mean, and I think we really, what's fundamental to this is we really need systems-based approaches to or across forestry and agricultural and energy sectors as, as well as water management. And quite often in political systems, these things are all in different places. You know, the Ministry of Environment is separate from the Ministry of Agriculture, which is separate from the Ministry of Forestry, and they rarely interact. Um, and these processes need implementing at landscape scales, bringing all of those stakeholders and not, you know, the farmers as well as those that are involved in energy and those that are involved in biodiversity together. And I think we're moving in the right direction, but I think in reality, we really need to accelerate quite significantly the mechanisms for doing this, because uh, I think time is running out. And I think we have the science, we have lots of tools that, can enable these systems-based approaches to be implemented in a much more effective way. But sometimes there's just not everything coming together with a political will at the same time. Yeah. What you're saying about the need to accelerate is exactly the same as I've heard climate scientists talking about the need to accelerate the response to an accelerating problem. And we're just sort of, we're not, we're not even treading water. We're just sort of doubling down on the destruction in most cases. If you had to rate out of 10, two being absolutely abominable and 10 being fantastic, our efforts and achievements so far in solving this crisis, where would you put us collectively? I think globally, I would put a sort of three or a four. I think, you know, we really, we really have so much way to go. I mean, there are countries and there are uh, communities. I mean, the, the agroecology movement in some countries like Peru is really you know, phenomenally developed. And then, uh, and then regenerative agriculture is a, is a developing movement in certain groups. And the, there are those people who are moving the dial on this, but as a collective, we're still, still back at the same business as usual models. And we're still consuming globally the same model business, you know, as usual. So I think that's where the big transition needs to be. And it needs to, you know, I think at not just at, us as consumers globally changing, but actually that tra translating into how production systems are feeding the planet. And I think we, we, we've we got a long way to go where the majority of our food is being produced in sustainable ways. And it, it was a very nice example that I thought you shared on LinkedIn yesterday, which was about the fisheries industry and the export of fish meal from West Africa to Norwegian, you know, salmon fishermen. That's a classic example of where we're so badly going wrong in the equity, the, the rational science-driven decisions about how we use a global food system, given all these challenges. And, and, and those are the kind of things that we need to just hammer off the table completely so that they're not, you know, skewing uh, our, our food systems uh, in, in, in the continued path of... Uh, failing to maintain us within planetary boundaries okay well look chris thank you very very much it's been really insightful and really interesting and I hope to catch up with you again Definitely. soon thank, 
Thanks, Nick. Really good to talk to you. Mm-hmm.